A special thank you to everyone who is tuning in to Lullaby the Fear podcast. If this is your first time and you love the show, then please leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts to become a true Fear Cult ambassador. It supports the show for free and motivates me to research deeper cases. Sweet dreams. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? simply disappears. The other two died. Hello, hello, my pretties. It's your host, Ashalana, and I am raring to go this week, so I hope everyone is doing great. I've read so much on tonight's case over the last four weeks, and I am ready to detail the dark history of World War II, specifically at Auschwitz. A little fun fact about myself. My mother, she was adopted at a young age into a family of war veterans, and my late great-grandfather was a World War II Canadian sniper who was stationed in Europe against the Nazis, so I'm very proud to call him family. I am going to say this right now because I am and forever will be thankful for those who fought and are fighting for the freedom of the world in the military. Thank you so much. And thank you to the survivors who have the courage to speak out about their experiences and their memory will live on and those who have passed will forever live on. So respect to everyone and never forget history. Now that everyone has had time to settle into their listening positions, I hope you are ready because this episode will leave you in shock. This episode details with very disturbing accounts of world history. It is very, very heavy. So with that being said, welcome to Lullaby. In the previous episode, we discussed the ancient Egyptian pharaoh king Tutankhamun and his heretic father. This week is the third wow worst of the worst installment. As always, another history lesson for the books The man I am going to examine tonight is an absolute monster. He got away with tortures under the state and ran free. And his crimes were so horrific that they will forever appear in textbooks around the globe as long as no one forgets history. I am so deep in this case, you guys. (laughs) I read four biographies. I watched over 10 documentaries. And I read countless survivor testimonies. One biography that actually stood out for me the most, I purchased after I read it, and it was called, At Last, The Truth About Eichmann's Inferno, Auschwitz, a doctor's eyewitness account by Dr. Miklos Niesli. Miklos was the Jewish doctor who was forced to become the assistant slave of the Auschwitz Angel of Death. Now, before I begin the story, I want to say an important quote from a Holocaust survivor named Benjamin Lesser. You will hear me say this quote again later on in the story, but I really wanted to start off with it because it's so powerful. Benjamin Lesser said, quote, My obligation is to keep the memory alive. Life goes on. It is easy to forget. I will not allow the memory to be lost. Millions were slaughtered by the Nazis. If I don't repeat what I saw, they will die a second death. So, get comfortable, because sweet dreams are made of these. The following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of war crimes, the Holocaust, 
crimes against children, torture, and murder. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Ten-year-old Eva Moses held onto her mother desperately as they stood among the chaos on the train platform. A Nazi SS officer rushed over to his superior, shouting orders in German. Eva and her twin sister Miriam held onto each other tighter as they watched the officers. The officer approached the mother and asked, are they twins? In confusion, she responded, is that good? A smile crept onto the Nazi's face as he nodded and ripped the children away from their mother. Never seeing her again. This way, you have just become an important part of medical research. Eva and Miriam Moses had just become subject of the world's largest inhumane medical experimentation program. Months had passed and the two twins were put through horrific tests, vials of blood being drawn to see how long one could survive. One twin used for experiments and the other used as the control. One day, Eva was taken into a room and forced injected by a Nazi doctor with a substance unknown to her. Waking up the next morning, she felt incredibly ill. She was then taken away to a separate barrack and separated from her twin. As she grew sicker and sicker, a man would check on her every morning and every night. This man carried himself with a condescending arrogance that radiated as he would smile with his wide gap tooth at the children he considered lab rats. On this particular day, the Nazi doctor walked over to Eva and turned to the SS officers next to him. He laughed out loud and said, bad. <laughs> She's so young. She has only two weeks to live. This is the cruel true story of Joseph Mengele, the Auschwitz angel of death. Joseph Rudolf Mengele was born on March 16, 1911 in Gunzburg, Bavaria. He was the oldest of three sons to Karl and Wilberga Mengele. At the start of the 20th century, the Mengele's lived lavishly due to their industrial production business. The family owned a farm equipment manufacturing company called Carl Mengele & Sons, established in 1907. The company was one of the world's most successful farming manufacturers in Europe, and still exists today. As a child, Joseph was regarded as disciplined, intelligent, and a popular student. He had many loving friends and was not considered a problem child. Unfortunately, at home, Joseph's parents were very strict and enforced rules. Carl Mengele was renowned around town as a businessman who was not to be messed with. He was known for his temper and having no fear of showing it. Joseph's father, Carl, had the intent of making his son take over the family business once he graduated. But Joseph had other dreams. He aspired to become an anthropologist and study human behavior. Joseph promised his fellow classmates that one day, the world would never forget his name and that the name Joseph Rudolf Mengele would be in every encyclopedia. In the 1930s, when Joseph was 19 years old, he told his father that he had no interest in taking over Mengele and Sons. Joseph continued to excel into his entrance exams for the University of Munich. He studied philosophy, 
which was heavily influenced by the racial ideology of German chief Nazi anti-Semitic theorist, Alfred Rosenberg. Alfred Rosenberg was born in Russia in the late 1800s. While Rosenberg was in university, he was affected by the Russian Revolution that left him with a deep hatred for communism and everything that it involved. Rosenberg believed that the Jews were responsible for the communist movement, since Leon Trotsky, the foremost figure of the Russian Revolution, was a Jew. As a result, Rosenberg developed a virulent anti-Semitic ideology. In 1933, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party won power and began consolidating their position in Germany. And in 1934, Rosenberg was appointed to the Nazi party's chief radical theorist. His task was not simple. Prove all racial theories promoted by Adolf Hitler. Prove that the Germans were the master race and the Aryan superiority. While studying in Munich, Joseph had enlisted in the Sturmabteilung Assault Division. And in 1935, Joseph had earned his PhD in anthropology. He moved to Germany and met with Dr. Ottmar Freier von Verscher, who had an interest in genetic purity, although he was at first an anti-Nazi. Over time, Dr. von Verscher began supporting the Nazi theory due to his interest in eugenics, specifically twins. Joseph Mengele and his mentor began the attempt to prove German racial superiority. They studied congenital defects and racial differences. The doctors would study the physical makeup of races in an attempt to build the perfect genetics. They were even asked to provide physical evidence that supported the breach of the Neumannberg laws that forbade marriage between Germans and Jews. The two doctors worked alongside each other until 1938. During their time together, Dr. von Verscher's fascination with twins would linger with Joseph as he started his career. His medical reference was perfect and he was ready for greater things. Joseph was now officially a member of the Nazi party and trained as an elite SS officer and protector of Adolf Hitler. At 27 years old, life was going exactly how Joseph had dreamed of as a child. And on July 28, 1939, Joseph married 19-year-old Irene Schulbein. In Nazi Germany, it was important for SS officers specifically to prove their partner's ethnic purity, to prove they were not Jewish. When Irene was tested, it was revealed that she was not able to prove her lineage of her great-grandfather. This was seen as suspicious to the Nazi race commissions. And after friends and family testified that Irene was in fact not Jewish, they allowed the marriage, under one condition. The Mengele family was not allowed to be documented in the Nazi Sippen book. This book was an official detailed text certifying pure racial SS officers. In the late 1930s, the Nazi party's influence had expanded throughout Germany and on September 3, 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland. In June 1940, Joseph was called into military service. As an SS officer, he was supposed to be branded with a blood group tattoo that was placed under his left arm to identify his blood type. The purpose of the tattoo was to identify the officer's blood type in case of an emergency transfusion, and the officer was passed out. Luckily for Joseph Mengele, his ego prevented him from getting the tattoo. He refused it and this would benefit him later on in the story. Joseph was stationed in Poznan in central Poland, where he worked for Department 2 of the Racial Office. His duty was to exterminate any undesirable physical features that would degrade the Aryan race. This radical form of population cleansing was called hereditary hygiene. Public health measures were enforced to control marriage and reproduction, aimed to strengthen the superior race by destroying bad genes from society. The Nazis took it upon themselves to decrease national birth rates of any race they deemed lesser. 
This action was enacted by the law for the prevention of offspring with hereditary diseases. The law stated that individuals who suffered from any of the following conditions were not allowed to reproduce. Feeble-mindedness, epilepsy, chronic alcoholism, blindness, schizophrenia, manic depressive disorder, Huntington's disease, which is a fatal form of dementia, any other severe physical deformities, and genetic deafness. Vasectomies were the usual sterilization for men, and women were subjected to mandatory tubal ligation, and at this time resulted in the deaths of hundreds of women. On June 22, 1941, Germany launched Operation Barbarossa against the Soviet Union, going down in history as the largest military campaign in history, 3.8 million Germans and Axis troops. The urgency of medical support was considered Germany's top priority, and Joseph Mengele was called to provide medical aid. When it was evident that the Nazis were in over their head, Adolf Hitler called more aid from the Allied countries, allowing them to progress further into the Soviet territory. Joseph was amid battle when he witnessed a German tank get hit by an enemy. Without thinking twice, he ran to the scene and pulled out two German soldiers and rescued them amid heavy gunfire. Two SS officers witnessed the brave act and told their superiors. This act of bravery got Joseph awarded the highest honor of the Iron Cross First Class as a protector of the Germans. Soon after, Joseph was severely injured at the front lines, and after his recovery, he was not fit for war, so he was sent back to work for the race and eugenics program in Berlin. In January 1942, a Nazi conference was held to discuss the incorporation of poisonous gas to eradicate the Jews. Adolf Hitler referred to this as the final solution. This new method to murder the Jewish population in mass numbers was kept secret from the German people. Even today, there are former SS officers and others who have never seen a gas chamber and refuse to believe that the mass murder of over 6 million Jews and 5 million prisoners of war ever happened, at least to that extent, all due to the properly executed propaganda tactics of the Nazis. Being aware of the war crimes he was committing, Adolf Hitler created the Ministry of Public Enlightenment back on March 14, 1933. This was to prepare for the evil crimes to come. Adolf Hitler did not want the world, or even his own country, to believe the horror he was ultimately going to commit. According to Holocaust.org, quote, concentration camp and killing center officials compelled prisoners, many whom would soon die in the gas chambers, to send postcards home stating that they were being treated well and living in good conditions. Here, the camp authorities used propaganda to cover up the atrocities and mass murder. The Jezenstadt was a concentration camp located in what is known today as the Czech Republic. The ghetto camp existed for three and a half years, between November 24, 1941 and May 9, 1945. The Jezenstadt served as an important propaganda function for the Germans that apparently mimicked other concentration camps, such as Auschwitz. Of course, this was a lie. The publicly stated purpose for the deportation of Jews from Germany was their resettlement. The filtered propaganda films were used as an explanation for the German civilians who were puzzled by the deportation of German and Austrian Jews who were elderly and disabled war veterans. The public was told that it was a spa camp for people to retire in peace. In June of 1944, the International Red Cross demanded to inspect the health and humanitarian rights of Theresienstadt. The German police agreed. Prior to the inspection, the entire camp underwent a beautification process. Before the inspection, the Nazis immediately began deporting prisoners to other concentration camps to be exterminated. This was to make room and make a less crowded camp. 
gardens were planted, and the barracks were painted and refurbished. Outdoor games were set up. The Nazis staged social and cultural events for the visiting dignitaries. Everything was a hoax. The films were then made and distributed throughout Germany, and the public bought it. It was a wide-kept secret among the Nazis as well. The high-ranking officers felt that Joseph was the perfect Nazi officer to be handled with such sensitive information of the mass killings at the concentration camps. Joseph Mengele supported the idea to the fullest degree. He then explained that it was also a waste of opportunity. Joseph expressed enthusiasm for utilizing the Jews as research material to be experimented on. And with that, Joseph Mengele applied to become a part of the concentration camps to perform eugenic experimentation on prisoners. And in 1943, Joseph Rudolf Mengele was transferred to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Auschwitz-Birkenau is located in Poland, and it was the main concentration camp. And it is estimated that the SS officers and police deported a minimum of 1.3 million people to this camp in a five-year span. And approximately 1.1 million were murdered. And 90% of them were Jews at Auschwitz. 1.1 out of 1.3 million people. That is horrendous. Like, just wrap your head around those numbers. During the Holocaust, concentration camp tattoos were only given to prisoners at Auschwitz. So if a prisoner was transferred to another camp and had the serial number tattoo, they spent time at Auschwitz. Only the incoming prisoners selected for work duty were issued a serial number tattoo. The ones that did not receive a tattoo were immediately sent to the gas chambers. And by mid-1942, the majority of people sent to Auschwitz were Jews. And Adolf Hitler believed that one day, only one race would reign superior and take over the world, the Germans or the Jews. And this ideology was drilled into the Nazis' heads. They were so intimidated by the Jews and how intelligent they were that they felt they had to eradicate them all. It's awful, absolutely awful. A Christian physician from Vienna who was sent to Auschwitz for helping the Jews escape from the Nazis recounted a conversation that she had with Mengele in the spring of 1943 saying, quote, he told me there were only two gifted peoples in this world, the Germans and the Jews. He said the only question was who would dominate the other. And he said he was going to make sure that it was the Germans who dominated, end quote. So here's where it gets grim. The prisoners that were considered unfit to work, and these included children of any age, the elderly, uh, even pregnant women, and they were immediately ordered to the showers. And the bathhouses, however, were in fact disguised as gas chambers. So those who were told to stay and work got tattooed. And because of this, it's actually impossible to calculate how many were actually murdered at the camp. Because a lot of people would just get off the train and they get immediately sent to the gas chambers within 30 minutes of being at Auschwitz. A Nazi SS officer who was acting duty at Auschwitz by the name of, oh boy, I wrote this one down and I even try to like write it in how to pronounce it because I'm good with many languages, but German is hard. <laughs> it's hard. And my German listeners, I love that you guys can speak this language because it's very complicated for me. Lagerfreur Karl Fritz. Even if that was wrong, bear with me. <laughs> so he was the man to suggest using poisonous gas to mass murder prisoners in basement 11 of the camp. 
and he offered the concept of using Zyklon B, which is a mixture of hydrogen cyanide. A group of chosen prisoners were then selected and gassed as an experiment to see how effective the poison would be to kill them. And when the officers seen how well it worked, they turned the morgue into an official gas chamber and they could kill up to 900 people at a time. There is a scene in the movie Schindler's List and it sticks in my head and it gives me chills every single time. So the female prisoners in Auschwitz are in their barracks at night and they're telling stories to each other before bed. And there are hundreds of women and children cramped into this building. And this one older woman begins telling the story that is perceived to be a rumor about a gas chamber. And the women and children are listening very intently and they just cannot believe what they're hearing. And they end up not believing what this woman is saying because they cannot understand how any human could be so cruel to do such a thing, such as mass murder in buildings with gas. And then another woman, she begins explaining that the Nazis are evil. And even though they're evil, they wouldn't kill such mass groups in such a way because they need the prisoners for work. They need them. And then everyone agrees that it's just a rumor. And then in the very next scene, the barracks are completely emptied for health checks and everyone gets split up into two large groups and those in one group are told to go to the showers and they get all excited and they're finally able to get clean. It's a gas chamber, they're getting sent to the gas chambers. And then the mother who was telling the story notices that her daughter is in the other group and she's going to the bath chambers and she never sees her again. And that scene just, I got goosebumps right now. It just sticks with me. All right, the races and impure genetics that the Nazis ignorantly considered invaluable to society were murdered. And even if a German Nazi family had offspring with genetic impurities, they were murdered as well. So for example, there was the family of an SS officer who had given birth at home. And when the child was delivered, the mother screamed in disgust because the child was born without any limbs. So what these unbelievably disgusting people did was the father took the child to the hospital and said, I want nothing to do with this monster. And then the infant was immediately killed. And Adolf Hitler himself told the hospital, I don't care what happens to the child because in the name of the future master race, this is for the greater good. Do whatever you want to get rid of the child. And this baby's murder was considered the first death of Nazi Germany's mass non-pure eradication. After the silent killing of the disabled child, more and more mentally and or physically disabled children and adults were being given lethal injections. And up to 100,000 were murdered due to this Nazi purification program. So once the numbers reached the thousands, the Nazis needed a larger scale way to eradicate the innocent. And this is when the gas chambers were invented. Prior to the concentration camp gas chambers, the first original ones were in the basements of mental hospitals and carbon monoxide was used rather than Zyklon B. And later I will get into how the concentration camps incorporated the gas chambers. But as of now, this is where it started. The hospitals were then instructed to write letters to the victims' families saying how their relative died of some mysterious illness. And now, a brave group of German medical students called the White Rose, they made it their duty 
to explain to the public that these murders were happening in these mental institutions. And they risked their lives by distributing pamphlets and protesting the Nazis. And sadly, on February 22, 1943, the White Rose Resistance Group was sentenced to death by guillotine. And eventually the public had enough with the inhumane death of the disabled since there was starting to become an outcry and the deaths were starting to become suspicious because according to some of these family written postcard notes that were sent to the families, they didn't make sense with the conditions that their relative had. So it was getting a little suspicious, okay? Because of this public outcry, what ended up happening was the killing stopped in the hospitals, but Adolf Hitler allowed for the murders to continue in a more secretive way. So this was all before Adolf Hitler's final solution to mass murder the Jews in 1941 with the concentration camp gas chambers. It's absolutely horrendous. I, I can't emphasize the word horrendous enough. At this point, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party had full control over Germany and they controlled everything from the propaganda to the academics taught in schools, and no innocent German civilian was safe from the Nazi party. Let's continue. In May 1943, Joseph and his wife relocated to Auschwitz to assume his role as the camp's elite Waffen-SS chief physician. His duty involved the daily selection of who was acceptable for work duty and who would immediately get sent to the gas chambers. At this point, the gas chambers had increased to such a large scale that they had crematoriums connected directly to them. The Nazis were easily able to burn the gassed bodies right after death, and this led to a mass murder on an exponential scale. Every day, hundreds of Jews, Gypsies, Polish, Soviet prisoners of war, and other ethnic groups were transported and killed at Auschwitz. When Joseph came to Auschwitz, he was introduced to a problem that the prisoners were facing the infectious bacterial disease known as typhus, spread by parasites from poor sanitation. The barracks were designed to hold 700 people, and with the prisoners arriving in trains by the thousands, the barracks were cramped with up to 1,200 prisoners, and if any of them showed signs of typhus, they were then immediately to be killed. He ordered the death of 600 innocent upon arriving. According to Auschwitz.org, quote, the overall conditions of camp life ensured that many people fell sick from the very first months, and their numbers rose steadily over time. Physical harassment of the prisoners resulted in numerous broken limbs and sores on the buttocks, usually after flogging. The winter, and also late fall and early spring, saw numerous cases of colds, pneumonia, and frostbite, which developed not infrequently into gangrene. The dreadful sanitation conditions caused skin diseases, and above all, scabies. Almost all prisoners suffered from boils, rashes, and abscesses that resulted mostly from vitamin deficiency and infections. On the cattle car train platform, the arrival prisoners were picked apart by Joseph Mengele. The position at the platform was a rotation between physicians. The elderly, pregnant women, and children under 12, and the disabled were immediately killed upon arrival. Mothers with small children were seen as no use and were always killed. Since a grieving mother was left with no motivation to work, they were always sent to die. All Joseph Mengele had to do was stand on the platform and with a flick of his finger to the left or the right, sentence the innocent to their deaths. If Joseph yelled, right, the prisoner was then sent to the concentration camp to work or to be tested on. 
If he yelled left, they were immediately cramped into a large transport truck, marked with a large red cross signal, and told they were going for medical help. New arrivals would chase down the truck, screaming that they had some illness so they would be taken away to safety, to the alleged hospitals. But where they were truly going was to be executed via gas chamber at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Or they were driven to a vast open ditch, where by the thousands, they would be shoved into rows and shot execution style to their deaths. The process was considered to be perpetual motion, a never-ending process. Daily, thousands would be driven in and SS officers were stationed on site to line them up and shoot them all dead. The bodies would fall into the trench and land on each other. There were many who survived the initial shot and would die by having corpse die on top of them and suffocate. Those who were not sent to the trenches to be shot would be sent to the gas chambers at Auschwitz. The dozens of transport trucks were crammed with upwards to 1,500 new arrivals and would be gassed in each chamber 900 at a time. The prisoners were instructed to enter a large building with signs that read bath chambers in multiple languages. As they entered, SS officers said that they deserved a shower after the long train ride to the camp. Upon entering the long cement room, they had to strip naked and tie their shoelaces together and hang them along the walls. Officers then locked the doors and turned off all the lights, creating a pitch black, cramped panic room filled with up to 900 innocent men, women, and children. The medical doctors would then proceed to dump cyanide-based pellets of the poison Zyklon B. The poison would cause their eyes, nose, and mouth to bleed as they began to suffocate. Gasping for air, prisoners would stampede over each other and climb up to try and reach the door or the vents, not knowing what was happening, but there was no way out. In five to 20 minutes, depending on the person, everyone inside was dead. After it was determined that all had died, the poisonous air was pumped out. And once it was safe to enter, a special unit of Jewish prisoners, known as the Sonderkommando, not to be confused with the killing German Sonderkommando, were forced to go in and hose down their fellow prisoners. And they used hooked poles to pry the dead bodies apart. Valuables were removed and gold teeth were pulled from the corpses. Then the bodies were sent to the crematorium, where they were turned to ash. And just like any other day, it was routine for Joseph Mengele to sign each extermination form. Over time, the amount of gas bodies surpassed the Nazis' ability to dispose of them all quickly. It was then when the Nazis would pile the corpses into dozens of transport trucks and haul them to massive trenches. It was there that they were dumped and then burned. Since the cost of fuel to start the fires was too expensive, the officers utilized a collection of prisoner fat, carved off the bodies, as ignition. Although Joseph was not required to be present during the superficial train platform selection process, he believed that it was important for him to be there as a way to identify whom was the proper candidate for his medical experiments. Former SS officers who participated in the selections with Joseph recalled that whenever Mengele found a suitable guinea pig for eugenic testing, he would get excited and even sing in celebration. Joseph had given special orders to the SS officers to find twins, people with dwarfism, gigantism, or any other physical abnormality. The true interest of the Nazi doctor was his interest in experimenting on twins. This fascination was influenced by his early mentor, Dr. von Verscher. Joseph's goal was to conduct medical experiments on one twin and use the other twin as a control group in order to compare his research. Warning, 
The story now progresses into graphic details of the crimes committed by Joseph Mengele. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Every morning at 6 a.m., the test subjects, which were referred to as Mengele's children, were awoken. Joseph would inspect the children and would even have conversations with them. But this was only to manipulate them into trusting him. He would give them candy and cookies, and the young children would even call him Uncle Mengele. Joseph had this naturally calm demeanor. He was noted to always being neatly dressed, and many considered him attractive. Being a master manipulator and charming narcissist, he was easily able to make children trust him. So much so that adult prisoners would warn the youth to not have faith in the doctor, and yet the children would still go with him. That always resulted in their deaths. There was one event that happened when the barracks were routinely getting cleared to gas the women and children. It was a regular occurrence for the children to run and hide in the corners, and Mangala was always able to coax them out. He would then personally drive them in his own car to the gas chambers. To Joseph Mangala, these people were simply disposable, a waste of life, and were dead anyways. When a little girl was coaxed out of a small space by Joseph, and she pleaded with him and cried asking to see her mother, as casually as you could imagine, Joseph Mangala just flicked his hand in the air, disregarding the child, and signaled the SS officer nearby to take her. The officer grabbed the child and threw her so hard into a transport truck tire that it shattered her skull, killing her instantly. Mass executions and individual killings were a regular daily occurrence. Murder was happening around the clock, and the smell of death was literally in the air, from the rotting infections to the 24-hour crematorium. Testimonies from the war trials recalled that many SS officers hated the Jews so much that they loved the smell of the crematorium. To Joseph Mengele, Auschwitz was only a job. He was more concerned about finding twins to uncover the secret of creating the master Aryan race. Every second day, each twin would have their blood drawn. Their measurements were taken and compared. Joseph never told the twins why he was doing the tests or what was being injected into their bodies with needles. The experiments of Joseph Mengele were unbelievable. Multiple injections into their bodies every single day with a mysterious substance. Injections into the spine and spinal taps were administered with no anesthesia. Many were operated and dissected on while alive to record the effects. At one point, Joseph injected chloroform directly into the hearts of 14 pairs of twins. The controlled twin was then immediately killed after to have their heart compared to the other twin's heart. Joseph Mengele liked to perform random surgeries, such as organ removal, castration, and amputations. One event occurred when Joseph Mengele selected two four-year-old Romanian twins named Guido and Nina. He happily joked with the children as he guided them into the operating room. Hours later, when Joseph exited the room, it was revealed that he had attempted to create conjoined twins. Without any anesthesia, he had sewn the two four-year-olds' backs together and connected their veins. Over time, the injuries of the twins had caused such immense pain and suffering that the mother, a woman named Stella, was able to secretly acquire morphine, and she used it to kill her own children to end their suffering. Joseph Mengele would inject chemicals into the eyes of 36 children in hopes of being able to change their eye colors. Joseph would then continue other grisly experiments on the twins until they died or became useless to him. After, he would murder them. They were then dissected to compare the results. 
he would then remove their eyeballs and mail them to other eugenic doctors with his documents. In return, he received high praise from his superiors for his dedication to eugenics. Joseph Mengele even kept some of the eyeballs for his own collection. Witnesses explained that he had them pinned to the walls of his office, like a butterfly collection. The doctor even tested the effects of infectious diseases. One twin would be purposely infected with typhus or tuberculosis, and Joseph would monitor the progression every day. And when the twin died, he would give the other twin a lethal injection. Afterwards, he would dissect and examine their internal organs, comparing the damage. A father with kyphosis, which is a hump of the spinal column, and his son, who also had a deformity, were chosen by Joseph on the platform. The doctor took them back to the medical barracks. He fed them and had conversations with them. He then shot them point blank to have the other doctors boil their bodies to examine their bones. The boiling process took hours. And as the bodies were left unattended, when Joseph Mengele and the other doctors returned, they came across a group of starving prisoners eating the boiled flesh from the pot, unaware of what they were eating. In 1944, 10-year-old twins, Eva and Miriam Moses, were transported from their village with their siblings and parents. After 70 hours without food or water, the family arrived at Auschwitz. As Eva and Miriam piled out of the cattle car with thousands of other prisoners, they noticed that their father and two older sisters were gone, and they would never see them again. The two children gripped onto their mother, confused and frightened. An SS officer pointed them out in the crowd. He began yelling, twins, twins, and he forced them from their mother's grip. It was the last time they would ever see her. Eva and Miriam became a part of a group of approximately 1,500 sets of twins. In total, 3,000 twins were used by Joseph Mengele. Every morning, Joseph would enter the barracks, where all the twins were contained. He would then do a count of who was still alive. Eva and Miriam were used in two types of experiments. Three days a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays for eight hours a day, the girls were escorted into a room with other twins and forced to strip naked. They would get measured and compared. On Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, the twins would have their blood tested. Joseph would have the doctors take Eva and draw blood from her left arm to the point of her feeling weak. Then they would administer a minimum of five injections into her right arm. And to this day, it is unknown what was injected into her body. After one of the injections, Eva became very sick with a high fever. Her legs and arms became swollen and painful to move. That night, her body broke out into large red rashes. The following day, she was not measured. Instead, the doctor measured her fever. Eva was taken to the twin prisoner hospital barrack. Joseph and four other doctors came in. Joseph looked her over. He looked at her fever vitals and chuckled to the other doctors, saying, quote, too bad, she's so young. She has only two weeks to live. For two weeks, Eva was between life and death, but she refused to die. She knew that if she had died, then Joseph Mengele would have murdered her sister Miriam via lethal injection. This was in order to perform a double autopsy to compare the results. On January 27, 1945, four days before Eva and Miriam's 11th birthday, Auschwitz was liberated by the Soviet army. And after nine long months at the concentration camp, Eva and her sister, as well as some 190 twins of 3,000 survived. Decades after the escape, both twins suffered multiple illnesses due to all of the experiments. 
Miriam even fell pregnant after the war, and her pregnancy suffered dangerous complications. It was discovered that as a result of the experiments carried out by Joseph Mengele, her kidneys had not developed past the size of a child's. Miriam died in 1993 when she developed cancer of the bladder as a consequence of the experiments. She was 49 years old. Although Joseph's main demeanor was calm and charming, when he was angry, even his fellow SS officers knew to stay out of his way. One of the many horrendous crimes committed by Joseph Mengele was upon the discovery of a Soviet female prisoner that hid her pregnancy. Joseph flew into a fury and scolded the officers for not having recognized this and not immediately sending her to the gas chambers along with every other pregnant woman on the platform. Joseph ripped the newborn from its mother and threw it into a pile of prisoner corpses alive and left it to die. He then murdered the mother. This was not the only instance that Joseph discovered a hidden pregnancy. The other resulted in Joseph actually delivering the newborn and then immediately throwing it into the medical room's burning stove and killing the mother. On July 7, 1944, a Hungarian family arrived on the Auschwitz platform. Two 17-year-old boys were chosen by Joseph Mengele, Ephraim and Laszlo Reichenberg. Together, they were assigned to a barrack with a thousand other twins. Once in the company of the other prisoners, Ephraim asked when they would be allowed to see their families. Another teenage boy led him to a window where he could see a chimney with smoke billowing in the wind. Look, your loved ones are being released through the chimney and dissipated into the wind. Ephraim said, quote, my brother wanted to commit suicide, but I prevented him from doing so, telling him that I would not be able to cope to live alone. Only with combined forces would we have a chance to survive. A few days later, Ephraim and his brother Laszlo were escorted to Dr. Mengele. Joseph took notice that one boy could sing. Ephraim, however, could not. And Joseph wanted to examine why two twins did not have the same gift. Ephraim recalls saying, quote, Mengele decided to perform medical experiments on our vocal cords. They injected some substance into our anterior necks, which in both of us immediately led to swelling, high fever, vomiting, hoarseness, muteness, and a state of exhaustion for several days. My brother was incapable of swallowing for a prolonged time, and these injections were repeated every four to five days over three months, until Dr. Mengele fled from Auschwitz. On January 18, 1945, we were forced into the notorious death march from Auschwitz, and then spent 10 days in the freezing cold winter in sealed livestock wagons, which brought us to another Nazi concentration camp, 35 kilometers north of Berlin, Thankfully, we were liberated by the Russian army in April 1945. Due to complications after being rescued, his brother Laszlo died in June 1946. Ephraim lived with the horrific health complications that I will detail later on in the story. Joseph Mengele believed that he had been giving the prisoners he had chosen a better quality of life since they were doomed to die ultimately in the end. He, like so many other Nazis, thought that these medical tests were beneficial when in fact, every test was an utter abomination to DNA and genetic research. Outside of the concentration camps, society was blinded by Adolf Hitler's Nazi propaganda. The purpose of Hitler's final solution was to exterminate the entire Jewish population and others deemed unfit for Germany's future. Again, due to the propaganda, the German public, as well as the SS officers and military outside of the concentration camps, thought that the concentration camps were just for prisoners as a place to get away. 
Joseph Mengele believed that the Aryan master race was the only thing important to the future of the world. And he thought that every other race was inferior and did not deserve any ounce of compassion. And Joseph's testing caused the Nazi belief that hereditary overruled the effects of one's environment while growing up. So basically, Mangala thought that the condition of one twin prior to experimentation would be exactly the same as the sibling, just because their genetics were the same. Completely disregarding the fact of how they were raised, which is preposterous because two identical twins can have completely different illnesses. And Joseph and the Nazis believed that twins were clones, two separate bodies of the same person. The Nazis believed that if they could unlock the secret to having twins, once they could isolate the perfect Aryan master race genetics, they could breed twins at double the speed and take over the world. Prior to Auschwitz, Joseph's twin testing partner, Dr. von Verscher, whose name I can't fucking stop saying, like, I'll leave this right now. I've left research, and throughout the day, my head is just going, Dr. Otmar Freier von Verscher. Like, I can't fucking stop. Somebody stop me. <laughs> okay. Prior to Auschwitz, Dr. von Verscher and. <laughs> Fuck. The doctor and Joseph, their testing prior to Auschwitz was ethical and humane. However, once Joseph was put in charge of a populace of prisoners that he deemed unworthy of life, he became a monster. So he was a narcissist, which in the end would unfortunately fucking end up saving his life. But I'll get into that later. Joseph's wife, Irene, recalled how her husband would get himself ready in the mirror and pride himself on how his skin was perfection. <laughs> and many of the survivors and former SS officers reported no matter how dirty and grimy the concentration camp was, no matter how disgusting and horrific the testing was, Joseph Mengele was always spotless and he carried himself with such high confidence. And there were multiple examples of Joseph like revealing his sadistic need for egotistical praise. He would deliver babies from the prisoners and then get the praise that he was such a good doctor. Then he would murder the mother and the child right after. And he loved that praise from everyone, including the mothers, because they were grateful that a doctor was actually taking in consideration that even though she's a Jewish prisoner, she needs help delivering a child in such terrible conditions. And so she was grateful for it. And then he would just go, boom, dead. Like, that's fucking disgusting. Also, Joseph was the only medical doctor at Auschwitz who had actually seen combat in the front lines. And some historians believe that Joseph Mengele suffered a head injury during some time of his battle days, along with some frontline PTSD and a surplus of anti-Semitism and the influence of his medical status. All those combined were the reason that he lost his humanity. That's what's theorized. And it actually makes sense because psychological reports detail no past trauma or acts that would possibly cause him to become so cruel prior to the war in Auschwitz. Now, according to a former friend of Joseph Mengele, he said, quote, Joseph was fully convinced that the annihilation of the Jews was a provision for the recovery of Germany and the world. Like, as he said as a child, like, I want to be in the encyclopedia. I want to be known for creating this perfect German race. And now, 
Congratulations, Joseph Mangala. You're in the encyclopedia as the worst person to ever walk this fucking planet. And you guys are going to be very happy because he, when he dies, he does not die a happy camper. So we'll get to that later. Another psychological theory from historians is that Joseph may have suffered from a hereditary bipolar disorder. And here's why. Previous worker reports from Mengele & Sons Manufacturing Company expressed that Joseph's mother, Walburga, was heavily moody, and her demeanor would change from happy to aggressive in a matter of seconds, which suggests undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And historians suggest that this would explain the bouts of pure excitement to instant rage, as described by former SS doctors and survivors who worked with Joseph Mengele. It's a historian's theory, but it's very interesting to mention. Let's continue. A prisoner by the name of Ruth Elias gave birth to a newborn delivered by Mangala. Joseph wanted to see how long a baby could go without its mother's milk. Ruth retells Joseph Mangala wrapping her breasts tightly with bandage to prevent nursing. Ruth tried to feed her daughter with half-chewed bread wrapped in a piece of linen dipped in coffee, but the baby lost weight. And finally, she said, quote, it couldn't cry, it could only whimper. About a week after the birth, Joseph had told her to get ready to move from the barracks. She said she assumed she was going to the gas chamber. A Jewish doctor told Ruth that the child could not live and suggested that Joseph Mengele might lose interest in her and not order her killed if the baby was dead. After minutes of convincing, Ruth used an injection of morphine that the Jewish doctor had given her and killed her baby. In result, Ruth survived. In 1944, when the Nazis invaded Hungary, a Holocaust survivor named Benjamin Lesser and his family were taken to Auschwitz. Once on the train platform, Joseph Mengele started separating the prisoners into who would live and die. Joseph approached Benjamin, who was only 15 at the time, and asked, could you run five kilometers or do you want to go by truck? Fearing for his life, Benjamin lied and told the angel of death that he was 18 years old and he could work. Once in the barracks, the SS officers started shouting at Benjamin and the other Hungarian prisoners saying, quote, you Hungarians, you think you were here on vacation. See those ashes? They are your mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters. You will end up in those ashes. Benjamin was living in the barracks next to the fire pits where the Nazis burned the prisoners alive or disposed of the surplus of gas corpses. Benjamin recalled the experience saying, quote, I'll never forget the barrack. It was next to the pits. They were throwing children alive into fiery pits. We saw flames and heard screaming. They couldn't be bothered to even kill the infants. They had no hair or gold teeth. So they threw them on top of the trucks with dead bodies for burning. Possibly one of the most horrific events witnessed by many Auschwitz survivors was the death of over 300 five-year-old Soviet kindergartners orchestrated by none other than Joseph Mengele. Joseph and a number of other SS officers arrived by motorcycles to the fire pits and waited. Soon, 10 transport dump trucks arrived, each filled with dozens of children. Joseph gave the order, and one at a time, each dump truck backed up to the fire pit and dumped the children in, alive. SS officers used sticks and the butts of their rifles to push the children crawling out back into the flames. No one older than five, and no one ever survived. These are memories that Benjamin Lesser will never forget. Talking about his duty as a Holocaust survivor, Benjamin Lesser said, quote, 
My obligation is to keep the memory alive. Life goes on, it's easy to forget. And I will not allow the memory to be lost. Millions were slaughtered by the Nazis. If I don't repeat what I saw, they will die a second death. On March 11, 1944, Joseph Mengele and his wife Irene had a son who they named Rolf. For safety, Rolf was sent to live with Joseph's family in Germany. Later in life, Rolf said that his father's actions horrified him and that his own personal political views were, quote, diametrically opposed to that of my father's. In July of 1944, the Soviet army had breached the borders of Poland and headed directly for Auschwitz. After the failed assassination of Adolf Hitler on July 20th, a week later, the Polish resistance had an uprising and signaled to Germany that their strength was dwindling in the war. On September 13, 1944, Air raid sirens rang out across Auschwitz that indicated there was an attack in the area. These warnings became a regular occurrence during the closing of 1944. Joseph Mengele and his wife were given special permission to leave the camp and escape the danger. The couple fled to Gunsberg to stay with Joseph's parents. Not a week had passed and Auschwitz was given orders to dispose of as many remaining prisoners and evidence against their crimes before they were taken over. Thousands of incriminating documents were burned Thousands of prisoners were gassed, shot, or injected, and then sent to the crematorium. Close to 60,000 prisoners were led on the infamous death march. Prisoners were also forced to help destroy buildings that had proof of the atrocities that were committed inside Auschwitz. On January 14, 1945, Joseph Mengele had packed multiple blood samples, experiment documents, and samples into a briefcase and fled Auschwitz with a number of other SS doctors. The SS officers who remained at the camp went on a murderous rampage and stole valuables from the camp before abandoning the survivors. Many of the remaining prisoners died of starvation before the Soviet army liberated Auschwitz on January 27, 1945. When the Red Army entered the abandoned camp, they fed the remaining 7,000 survivors. The Soviet soldiers discovered more than 600 decaying corpses around the barracks. Between 1941 and 1945, the Nazis murdered a minimum of 1.1 million people in Auschwitz alone, and only 7,000 survived. Of the 3,000 twins that Joseph Mengele had experimented on, only 190 survived. The Soviets found close to 370,000 men's suits, 837,000 women's garments, 7.7 tons of human hair, which is equivalent to 15,400 pounds. There were also hundreds of prosthetic limbs and over 13,000 pairs of eyeglasses. If you visit Auschwitz-Birkenau now, it's a museum, and you can see all of these on display. After fleeing Auschwitz, Joseph Mengele went to Gross Rosen, another concentration camp southwest of Poland. Not two weeks had gone by, and the Soviets were on their way to liberate Gross Rosen. Joseph fled again, changing his name and removing his SS uniform. He joined a general unit of the German army and fought alongside them for two months. On May 2nd, 1945, Joseph found himself with an old SS medical colleague, Hans Otto Koller. Hans Koller was serving with a motorized German field hospital. It was also on May 2nd when the news of Adolf Hitler's suicide had spread across the world. Joseph refused to believe the news and told Hans Koller that it was the enemy's propaganda. Later that night, Joseph asked Hans Koller if he could join the mobilized hospital. The offer was accepted, and Joseph's true identity was kept a secret. During this time, Joseph developed a close relationship with a German nurse, who he had given access to his Auschwitz experiments. 
in case he was captured. On May 8, 1945, World War II officially came to an end. Adolf Hitler was dead, and many of the SS officers were hunted down for their crimes. Those who fled authorities were on the most wanted list, and that list included the Angel of Death, Joseph Mengele. While in a buffer zone, Joseph Mengele caught the attention of Colonel Fritz Ullmann. Over many roll calls, Joseph was giving many different aliases. And in June, the American military had entered the area and took the German hospital unit captive. Unaware of who Joseph Mengele really was, the Americans transferred the prisoners to a prison camp until they were demilitarized and could return to their peacetime lives. When Joseph was processed, he had given up with a run and had given the Americans his true name. Joseph was awaiting the day that he was to be tried for his crimes at Auschwitz, but soon discovered that the Americans had no clue who he was. They never questioned him about Auschwitz. German Colonel Ullmann was recruited by the Americans. He took notice that Joseph Mengele had fallen into a depression. Colonel Ullmann realized that Joseph Mengele was who he truly was, but kept it a secret from everyone. He used his new position to acquire a fake ID for Joseph that allowed him to escape after the Americans released him. In September of that year, 34-year-old Joseph Mengele was released into Germany, a free man. Joseph had both his real identification papers as well as his false identification papers that read Fritz Allman. Due to an administration oversight, it was concluded that the Americans did not have access to the most wanted lists, and that's how Joseph Mengele got free. Fearing that during his travels, he would get stopped by one of the many identification checkpoints, he borrowed a bike from a local farmer and hid his real Joseph Mengele papers inside of the hollow handlebars. Joseph, under the alias Fritz Allman, had ridden with the farmer to Donauworth, Germany. Once in town, Joseph said goodbye to the farmer and thanked him for letting him borrow the bike, and he gave it back. As the farmer left, Joseph realized that his real Joseph Mengele papers were in the handlebars, forcing him to only go by the name Fritz Allman. Joseph located some old friends, Dr. Miller and his wife. He asked if he could stay with them for a short while. He requested that Dr. Miller travel to Gunsberg to inform the Mangalas that their son Joseph was safe. During his trip, Dr. Miller was arrested by the American military and taken in for questioning due to his involvement with the Nazis. Joseph Mangala assumed that Dr. Miller was arrested for harboring a criminal and fled to the Soviet-occupied East Germany. He planned to reclaim the Auschwitz experiments and notes that he had given to the German nurse. Although Dr. Miller was arrested, his wife, Mrs. Miller, traveled to Gunsberg herself to deliver the news to Mengele's parents. During this time, Joseph's father and brother were taken in for questioning as well. They all told authorities that Joseph had died in combat months ago. Both the Soviets and the Americans had no choice to believe that the angel of death was dead. He managed to escape to Bavaria and work as a farm stableman for years. In Joseph Mengele's journals, he wrote how working on the farm had caused more depression for him and he seen labor work beneath him as he was an accomplished doctor. With the reconstruction of Germany, the Mengele & Sons Manufacturing Company was experiencing a profit boom. The extra money was transferred to Joseph. Although Joseph was having a surplus of money, he was still in a heavy depression. Joseph's wife, Irene, told him that his large forehead and distinctive gap tooth would cause him to be easily recognized. Joseph began growing out a thick mustache to distract from his teeth. Over the years, the fear of getting captured caused Joseph to chew on the mustache to the point of developing a hairball in his stomach that caused major health problems. In the summer of 1946, Joseph arranged a secret meeting to see his family. 
Over time, Joseph began leaving the farm and visiting the Millers and his wife. Except, a fight broke out over possibly endangering the lives of the people involved, realizing that if he stayed in Germany, the odds of him getting captured increased. He decided to flee to Argentina in South America in 1949. He packed up his Auschwitz experiments and all of the money his family had given him and asked Irene and his son, Rolf, to come with him. They refused. The couple eventually got divorced and Irene remarried. Argentina was Joseph's chosen destination because up to 9,000 SS officers immediately immigrated there after the war. The Argentine president sought to recruit those Nazis with particular military and technical expertise that could help with the country. Also, the financial incentive was appealing. Many rich Germans were willing to pay a high sum of money to immigrate into the country. The self-exiled Joseph Mangalo worked in Buenos Aires as a carpenter. He was introduced to a former SS colonel named Hans Ulrich Rudel, who had been actively involved in helping Nazis escape the country. Joseph was able to contact his family back in Germany and over time was able to acquire a copy of his birth certificate that allowed him to live freely as Joseph Mengele in Argentina, protected by Nazi sympathizers. Americans and the Soviets had given up search for Joseph Mengele, but the public survivors absolutely wanted to capture the angel of death. The search continued for years. In 1975, 64-year-old Joseph moved to Sao Paulo, Brazil. The angel of death lived in a small shack to avoid drawing any attention to himself. He wrote in his journals about how lonely and frail his health was. The Mengele family had stopped sending him money years prior, forcing Joseph to retreat further into isolation. He no longer had money to bribe others, and he knew the Nazi hunters were still searching for him. In about 50 letters written to his son Rolf between 1968 and 1978, Joseph never admitted to any guilt, and he said that it was a pity that he was condemned to a fugitive's existence because he could have been the world's greatest medical scientist. Rolf Mangala later visited his father in Sao Paulo in May 1977, after being separated for 21 years. When he found the world's most hunted Nazi, he said, quote, he was a frightened, hounded creature, full of fear, depressed, and thinking often of suicide. The 50 letters all detail how Joseph Mengele felt no remorse for his crimes, and he does not comprehend why the world does not understand. Joseph Mengele said, quote, While I cannot hope you will understand or sympathize with the course of my life, at the same time, I do not have the slightest reason to try to justify or excuse whatever decisions, actions, or behaviors of mine. Rolf visited his father for two weeks, and spent every moment trying to make his father admit to the atrocities that he had committed in Auschwitz, but to no avail. Joseph explained to his son that his job was to make the decision on who to save and who to let die, saying, quote, People were arriving infected with disease, half dead. I was selecting as many people who could work as possible. Twins in the camp owed their lives to me. I have never harmed anyone in my life. While he had resolved not to turn him in, he had no desire to develop a relationship. Rolf then left his father to live out the rest of his life afraid and alone, with no one missing him. A month after his son's visit, Joseph wrote Rolf thanking him for coming over and told him that he could now die in peace. On February 7, 1979, Joseph was at a beach in Sao Paulo with two of his only friends. He spent the entire afternoon complaining about his life and after some convincing from his friends, he decided to go for a swim in the Atlantic Ocean. Not 10 minutes into the swim, Joseph had a stroke that paralyzed half of his body, 
causing him to drown. He died at 67 years old. News of Mangala's death was kept a secret by the family, and he was quietly buried under a false name. There were still European authorities who were looking for the Auschwitz Angel of Death. It is believed that the idea of Mangala was living in the riches of Brazil is what kept him from getting caught, since he was living the exact opposite nearing the end of his life. On May 31st in 1985, the police raided a Gunsberg home of the German former manager of the Mangala's family machinery company. The officers found a shrine dedicated to Mangala with multiple letters from the doctor. In one of the letters, it was revealed that six years prior, Joseph Mangala had died while swimming and he was already buried. The German authorities contacted Brazilian police who then exhumed the grave of Joseph Mangala. There has been considerable controversy over the identity of the skeletal remains exhumed in Brazil in 1985. Bone DNA analysis provided an independent evidence of identity. Comparison of the femur DNA with the DNA from Joseph Mengele's son and wife revealed a full compatibility with the paternity of Mengele's son, indicating that the skeleton remains were in fact those of Joseph Mengele. Survivor Eva Moses Kor did not speak publicly about her days with Joseph Mengele until 1978. She could not recall many of the repressed memories. Eva found the drive to remember her experience and seek healing through finding other Mengele twin survivors. By 1980, Eva was sending 500 letters a year, but no one responded. She then decided to start an organization where she would send letters as a founding president, and it worked. Many Mangala twin survivors reached out to her and exchanged memories. They all expressed it was a healing and liberating experience to speak publicly about their Auschwitz past. In 1984, Eva founded Candles, Children Against Auschwitz Nazi Deadly Lab Experiment Survivors and named her sister Vice President for Israeli Survivors. Eva liked the acronym CANDLES because she wanted to shed some light on the hidden and dark chapter of the Holocaust, known as Auschwitz. In July 1993, Eva was invited to a lecture to speak about her past. The organizers asked if she could bring a Nazi doctor with her. Initially, she was shocked, but then recalled that she had been in a documentary with Dr. Hans Munch from Auschwitz. Later, Eva traveled from America, where she had been living, back to Germany to meet Dr. Hans Munch. She recalls how he invited her into his home and treated her with the utmost respect. Eva asked him if he had seen the gas chambers in Auschwitz, and he told her that he sees them in his nightmares every night. Eva then asked Dr. Hans Munch if he would accompany her to Auschwitz to sign a document at the ruins of the gas chambers at the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and he said that he'd love to. Eva Moses Kor recalled, quote, In my desperate effort to find a meaningful thank you gift for Dr. Munch, I searched stores and my heart for many months. Then the idea of forgiveness came to my mind. I knew it would be a meaningful gift, but it became a gift to myself as well, because I realized I was not a hopeless, powerless victim. When I asked a friend to check my spelling, she challenged me to forgive Dr. Mangala too. At first, I was adamant that I could never forgive Dr. Mangala, but then I realized I had the power now, the power to forgive. It was my right to use it. No one could take that away from me. For most people, there is a big obstacle to forgiveness because society expects revenge. It seems we need to honor our victims, but I always wonder if my dead loved ones would want me to live with the pain and anger until the end of my life. Some survivors do not want me to let go of the pain. They call me a traitor, and accuse me of talking in their name. I have never done this. 
Forgiveness is as personal as chemotherapy. I do it for myself, end quote. The beautiful survivor, Eva Moses Kaur, died on July 4th, 2019, at 85 years old. She left this world in peace and a powerful woman who had the power to forgive and teach the world that it's not always about revenge, but teaching the world to not repeat history. Mangala survivor Ephraim Reichberg said this about his forgiveness towards the evil doctor. Quote, Looking back, I have no nightmares, and I bear no anger or bitterness towards Dr. Mangala and his medical team. I firmly believe that what helped me overcome adversity and even thrive after Auschwitz was my warm family upbringing, despite poverty. My sincere love of life and my desire to always improve and find new meaning in experience. It was impossible in Auschwitz to know what the next five minutes would bring, and therefore one had to adapt accordingly. The same ability to adapt, I believe, held me in good stead for my later medical challenges with laryngeal cancer. I do not believe that I am in denial or have ignored my experience. I constantly analyze it. Even when sick or broken, one can cry or decide to move on. I choose the latter. I look life in the eye with a smile. I want to help others do the same." End quote. Since the medical experiments, Ephraim has lost his voice completely over the years. The many injections from Joseph Mengele forced Ephraim to undergo major surgical procedures, including radical pharyngectomy, laryngectomy, and neck dissection, followed by a reconstruction of his esophagus, larynx, neck, and skin grafting from his right arm. Ephraim continued to say, after more than 20 surgical procedures and tube feeding for many months, I regained reasonable functions. However, I am still unable to speak, but after 19 voiceless years, in 1984, I began to use an innovative German-produced external voice amplifier that enables me to speak with an artificial voice. The brave Ephraim currently lives in Hungary and is 95 years old, and he spreads his word of his story around the entire world. Nothing can excuse the crimes that Joseph Mengele and the Nazis have done. Many twin survivors, such as Eva Moses Kor and Ephraim Reichberg, chose forgiveness as a way to no longer dwell and live in peace, a way of healing oneself from pain, trauma, and or tragedy. It is a means of self-liberation and self-empowerment. Eva Moses Kor wrote in a letter of forgiveness, saying, quote, Forgiving is not forgetting. It is, in many cases, impossible to forget events that deeply affect us. They shape our lives for better or worse. In the case of the Holocaust, it is important to remember and educate so it cannot happen again. Forgiving does not mean we condone the evil deeds of the Nazis and or other perpetrators. The question of justice is separate from the issue of forgiveness. Each person can forgive only in his or her name. One cannot forgive in the name of all Holocaust survivors, nor can one forgive someone for something he or she did to someone else. One can only forgive for what is done to him or her. It is a personal act. Forgiveness is more than letting go. It is a proactive rather than passive. We become victims involuntarily. When a person or entity with power takes away our power to use our mind and body in a way we choose, something was done to us that put us in a position of feeling powerless. Thus, the conscious choice to forgive provides healing, liberation, and reclamation of this power. There could be no justice attained in a seeing them punished. Instead, we should focus on learning the truth, forgiving, but not forgetting. 
and healing the souls of the victims, as said at the beginning of the episode. Quote by Benjamin Lesser, a Holocaust survivor. My obligation is to keep the memory alive. My life goes on. It is easy to forget, and I will not allow the memory to be lost. Millions were slaughtered by the Nazis. If I don't repeat what I saw, they will die a second death. is the true story of the war crimes of the evil Dr. Joseph Mengele. That is such an intense piece of history. And the survivors, I watched fuck, hours of their stories and they are just phenomenal people. Like, I'm trying not to cry. I'm not going to cry. I have a podcast to do. Get it together, Ashley. <laughs> the survivors are absolute warriors who deserve to never be forgotten and to be spoken highly of for generations and for some of them to choose forgiveness as their own way of healing is just a banner of how strong these people are after everything that they went through honestly i i cannot express how amazing these people are and everyone should respect them they chose not to live the rest of their lives being mentally controlled by that evil man even after they were physically liberated in 1945. It takes a great wealth of personal power to do that. And we cannot forget the victims, and we cannot forget history, for when we do, we are doomed to repeat it. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. This is our quest, our never-ending quest to find a truly scary movie. And this one is on the disturbing side of horror. It is the 2017 psychological film, Trauma. Warning, 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 it is a fucking wallop. <laughs> the first three minutes of the movie, my eyes were just bulging out of my head. It felt illegal to watch it. <laughs> And the film follows four women who are enjoying a house party and they are brutally attacked by a rapist and his son. The actions cause the remaining women to seek them out afterwards and kill them. If you can't do harsh films, don't watch it. I'm recommending it because many people of the slasher community that follow Lullaby the Fear podcast, hey, 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 you guys told me to watch it and I watched it. And you bastards, <laughs> with the best intent, I love you guys so much, you got me. That movie made me very uncomfortable. Congratulations. <laughs> when I was trying to recall what the title of the movie was, I was filling my browser history with shit that definitely got me flagged by my CIA agent. I put in, man forces son to rape mother, then shoots her and forces him to continue... <laughs> And then I put in Chilean horror movie Rape. And then I found it. I found it. 2017 trauma. <laughs> I tried to scare you. Now you try to scare me. You can reach out and send me your horror movie recommendations like the slasher community did with trauma at lullabythefearpodcast.com for more details. Don't forget to rate and share this podcast to support the show and stay positive and stay happy. And remember, you are fucking amazing. Just like these fucking Holocaust survivors. They're just 
amazing and respect to those who died and sweet dreams lights out.